Today on Ag News Daily. If you're a farmer, I mean, you still need the machinery you need to do what you do. So it just became this thing where everyone collectively became more comfortable. I don't have to kick the tires. And, you know, there's better pictures of items for sale, video, things like that. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy... What is today? Thursday on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carnash. And I was not on the podcast yesterday because I was purchasing a new truck. Oh, don't you worry. I already told everybody how jealous I was. <laughs> yes, I uh, got a new black truck. It's really nice. I'm excited to drive it, drive it on the farm, etc. So yeah, we I appreciate that you took care of the podcast for me yesterday. Well, of course, Delaney, I thought you might have to take care of the podcast today because I had to do some things to my truck as well. I had to get my oil changed, get it uh, my state inspection looked at. So it was taking me a little bit longer than I anticipated, but here I am. Well, good. We are glad to have you today, Ashton. And I tell you what, we actually are getting some pretty dreary weather here in central Iowa, pushing a lot of folks out of the field today. So it's kind of a blah day all around. Well, I am going to hopefully lift that mood up here with this first piece of news that I have, at least for our soybean producers, as this might be an increase in domestic demand here because Southwest Airlines is the latest airline to push for sustainable aviation fuel. Southwest is joining Delta, JetBlue, and United in giving sustainable aviation fuel a boost with long-term and short-term commitments. They announced that by 2030, they will, or that they plan to replace 10% of its total jet fuel consumption with sustainable aviation fuel. And I keep saying sustainable aviation fuel because that's what the articles that I've been reading are calling it, but basically it's just fuel made from soybeans. So huh. bio, like, so is it biodiesel then? I, I guess it's similar to biodiesel. They just keep calling it um, sustainable aviation fuel. So I guess that's the term that they're going with, but it was compared, you know, this sustainable aviation fuel is to soybeans as ethanol was to corn in the first couple of decades of the 2000s. So I don't remember that boom or anything. Maybe you do Delaney, but from what I'm reading, it is going to be a, a big domestic boost here. In fact, it was said that by the year 2025, we're going to need 40 billion pounds of feedstock to keep the renewable energy refineries running. So like I said, it's comparable, I guess, to ethanol to, as ethanol is to corn, but I don't know. They could just keep calling it sustainable aviation fuel. All right. Well, interesting, Ashton. I don't know what to, I'm assuming it's biodiesel, but I guess I don't know that for sure without doing a little more research there. So I'll uh, just keep that to myself for now, but I'm going to take us back here to weather for a moment, Ashton, because the NOAA today released their winter outlook this morning. And of course, we know we are returning to a La Nina pattern with warmer conditions, drier or excuse me, warmer conditions in the south and wetter conditions in the north. But overall, this winter will be 
warmer than average for the United States, which is certainly some good news because as you consider where our natural gas market is, if we had a cooler winter this year, that would mean an increased expense for consumers who need to crank up that thermostat. So should be warmer than normal winter temperatures this year. I can't remember if I shared this on the podcast or not, Ashton, but I heard on the radio the other day that consumers could expect their energy bills this winter to increase across the board 25 to 45%. So with potentially warmer winter, hopefully the consumer doesn't feel that quite as much. I don't know if you pay for your natural gas action, but we certainly do. So I am hopeful we don't have a super cold winter. Yes, I pay my utility bills. And I've got to say, Lubbock Power and Light Company, they will do anything and everything they can, I feel like, to increase the price that we have to pay each month. And I see, I'm part of a couple of different Facebook groups, you know, based here in Lubbock. And I see people complain about LPNL all the time and the price that they have to pay. And it, it is a little bit expensive. Of course, this is the first city that I'm paying my utility bill in. So I don't know how comparable it is to other places, but it already is a little bit expensive. So I'm really hoping that we don't experience too harsh of a winter here. But with that, Delaney, I'm going to move things over and talk about some expectations that we might have for the 2022 planting slash growing season here for corn. Of course, we've been watching input prices and a couple of other things when it comes to, you know, next season and just kind of anticipating what to expect here. But it's been said by Matthew Greenspan, who's a precision agronomist with Advanced Agrolytics, that nitrogen management will be critical for corn crop in preparation for next year. In fact, Greenspan says that he's working with farmers to address nitrogen loss in flooded areas that can lead to yield loss. He says that he's noticing and focusing on those areas by adding nitrogen protectant, but by also adding nitrogen there to buffer for where we're going to have some loss. As for those yields that dry out first, he says that we need to probably back down nitrogen protection a little bit on that acre. So we're already looking forward here to the future. Of course, we've been talking a little bit about that just from a fertilizer standpoint, from an equipment standpoint. So again, just kind of looking out here for 2022. Yeah. And as you're mentioning there with nitrogen, obviously a big component of that is also tied to fertilizer prices and how that impacts what growers are able to implement from an agronomy standpoint next year. And Ashley, I've got a little update here for folks that are continuing to watch this fertilizer story, as I know I certainly am. Josh Linville, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago, shared this on Twitter today, but it's rumored that Russia may follow suit in what China is doing and limit fertilizer exports. Now, this has not yet been confirmed. This is just a rumor. But President Putin was apparently quoted as saying that they need to develop measures that will help their farmers and respectively limit food price increases. And so it is suggested or kind of reading in between the lines here, whether or not it's political or not, it is appearing that Russia may also limit fertilizer exports, which if we have, again, less um, available supply on the marketplace, that will only continue to push up supplies or push up prices, I should say. Sorry. 
Well, Delaney is still talking about fertilizer here. I saw a tweet from someone um, that said, has anybody tried growing corn without any fertilizer? And I don't know if this was satire or not, but it did make me chuckle a little bit because the responses, some of them were funny. And then some of them were actually, I think, good discussions to have when we're talking about fertilizer and how this next planting season will go. So people are really trying to have conversations here. I, I think productive conversations, at least on getting a plan started. Yes. I think that that's really what you have to do at this point in time is you do unfortunately have to start thinking about next year's crop, even though this one still might be in the ground, but yeah, it sounds like a lot of discussions are starting to happen. So definitely positive news there for producers taking it seriously. Absolutely, Delaney. And another thing that I think a couple of different countries across the world are taking seriously is bird flu. There's been another reported outbreak, this time in Italy, of H5N1 bird flu, this time on a commercial farm of fattening turkeys. This outbreak killed 200 birds out of a flock of nearly 13,000. And I didn't see if the farm was taking any calling measures or anything like that, but I suspect they will just because of the pattern that we've seen here of once these birds have contracted or once there is an outbreak, I feel like typically they do some kind of culling. So I suspect that that is on the horizon for that farm. Yes, it certainly sounds that way, Ashton, which is, again, not great news because especially as you consider, you know, reducing that type of herd, a lot of folks are turning to alternatives like poultry for poultry manure for fertilizer options this year. I've seen a lot of discussion about that as well. Oh, wow. I have not seen that. So that's quite interesting. I'm going to have to dig into that a little deeper to see if we can have a conversation about that on the podcast. Yeah, that might be a good one. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that until now, but the only downside I've noticed, and it's very distinct when you are using turkey or chicken manure as fertilizer, because the smell is just very distinct and pungent compared <laughs> to even cattle or hog manure. But supposedly, from what I've heard, uh, poultry manure works just as well, if not better, than cattle and hog manure. Delaney, I, I think I recall us having a conversation like this, but I'm scared of birds. I don't like <laughs> I would not want to be incorporating those kinds of products. Yeah, that's fair. I don't love birds either. So I feel that. But as long as I'm not the one that has to like round up the birds, if I could just use the product, that's great. But I wouldn't want to be the one signing up to manage those birds. Oh, absolutely not. We have I think like 13 hens at my parents' house and my younger sister who is I think about to turn 10 this December and she absolutely loves them. She'll go out there, mess with them, play with them, collect the eggs and she'll try to help or ask me to go help her. And I'm like, no girl, you're all on your own. I'm not going out there. I'm going to have a nightmare if I go out there. So you're going to have to do that by yourself. I completely agree. I am right there with you. Like, I don't even want to go collect chicken eggs from my brother's chicken coop. No, it's, it sounds like though, Delaney, that we need to grow up a little bit here. I think we're still just a little childish, but you know what? I am okay with taking that title. I just, yeah, they're just not my thing. I just don't like birds. So it is what it is. <laughs> well, Delaney, I am all out of news here. What about you? Well, let's see. I was just going to mention a little bit of other news here quickly. Um, Secretary Vilsack and Mexico 
Mexico's agriculture minister have been touring the state of Iowa actually this week and were in Ankeny, Iowa yesterday. And according to reporters, I didn't go be part of this event. To be honest, I didn't know if there was any value in going, so I just decided not to. But it sounds like there were a couple of things that did come out of their tour. Uh, first of all, I thought this was interesting, but Vilsack went and spoke with and talked to folks that are continuing to strike outside of John Deere facilities. And it sounds like there are multiple facilities that are having strikes present at them. I know we mentioned this kind of off the air the other day, Ashton was which plant is even on strike at this point, but there are multiple plants at this point. So there are plants in the Moline, Iowa plant, or excuse me, Moline, Illinois plant, the Ankeny, Iowa plant, and also the Waterloo facility are all having picketers outside of it. And so Vilsack uh, spoke to and addressed some of the issues with those folks outside of the Ankeny plant and said that, you know, he hopes it comes to an equitable end, but he also understands why those folks were striking. Um, he also mentions that, or I suppose, both ministers mentioned that a domestic ban in Mexico on growing biotech crops, you know, GMOs, et cetera, certain traits that we've seen banned should not hinder any U.S. corn export sales to the country. That was echoed by both agricultural secretaries. So reassuring the crowd there. And on the note of exports, we saw this week strong exports for corn and soybeans both, which certainly helped to support markets today, Ashton. So with that, I am out of news. What do you say we hop in here? Let's do it. Fantastic. Well, we certainly had a little bit of a sell-off today, even with those continued export numbers. But as Darren mentioned on... Monday, uh, he is still seeing quite a bit of demand. And so that is kind of holding up the markets at this point. This is normal harvest pressure. I do not believe we have broke through, you know, that low that was already put in last week. So we should still be holding steady there, potentially have seen that harvest low put in for both corn and soybeans. But nonetheless, today was a little bit of an ugly day as the December corn contract closed down seven cents to close at 532 and a quarter. The March down six and a quarter ending the day at 541 and a half. In the soybean pits today, really the ugliness was here as the November contract shed 21 and a half cents to close at 1224, still not giving up all of this week's gains. The January contract down 21 and a half cents to close at 1233 and a half. Chicago wheat lower today as well with the December contract shedding eight cents to close at 741 and a quarter. The March down seven and three quarters cents and the day at 753 and a half. Hopping over into livestock today, we saw mostly weakness across the protein markets as the December live cattle contract shed 97 and a half cents, closing the day out at 129.55. The February down 82 and a half cents, closing the day at 134.77 and a half. And in feeder cattle today, the November contract gave up 27 and a half cents to close at 159.07 and a half. The January closing the day out at 160 on the nose, down some 47 and a half cents. Lean hogs today, the weakness really continued as the December contract shed 282 and a half to close at 73.20. The February down $2.55, closing the day out at 76. 67 and a half. And lastly, wrapping things up here with the class three dairy milk futures, really the only markets today to see some green on the screen. November up 52 cents today to close at 1984. The December up 45, closing the day out at 1950. 
Ashton, we've had a lot of great conversations this week. Let me turn it to you to fill us in on who we're chatting with specifically today. Well, today we are talking to Machinery Pete, a.k.a. Greg Peterson. Well, folks, we're chatting today with a very familiar voice and face in the equipment space of the ag industry, joined today by Greg Peterson, more famously known as Machinery Pete. Greg, we are very excited to chat with you today. I'm glad to be with you, Delaney. Greg, I got to start here with the story of how you became Machinery Pete. How did you get there and why the name Machinery Pete? Yeah, um, well, it's just been kind of slow motion process, Delaney. Uh, actually, November next month will be 32 years ago that I started. Um, so I was a year out of college. I was just doing accounting work. I'm kind of a numbers guy by nature, but grew up in West Central Minnesota. My dad was a third generation John Deere dealer. So I kind of grew up around the business. And uh, my dad actually was uh, subscribing to an auction price book from the, from the mid eighties, from a guy down the road in Morris, Minnesota, a banker that started the business of compiling auction prices in the mid eighties when, you know, things were obviously pretty dire in agriculture and, and the bank needed the hard cash equipment numbers just for valuation purposes. And my dad got this book and as a dealer, he didn't like looking at the auction prices and how low they were. But one thing was, he liked knowing. It's hard to remember, but of course, there was no internet then, uh, no cell phone. So information was was scarce. So he just knew it was good information. And the guy at the bank, uh, John Botain, who started the business, he had about 100 subscribers and uh, he got a promotion, didn't really have time to do it anymore. And my dad was bummed out that this book was going to go away. And that was right at the time my wife, Jackie, and I moved to Rochester, where we live now, and I was looking for a job. Dad called me up and he said, hey, I got something I want to show you. Drove home to Benson, Minnesota. He showed me the book. Um, he said, you're 23. You don't have kids yet. You know, I think you're kind of independent kind of a guy, which he was correct there. And he, he said, this is good info. I don't know what you can do with it. but So I took my dad's advice, which... When I talk to young farm groups, that's the number one thing I tell them is listen to your parents, listen to your grandparents. They, they know things, they've been there. So anyway, I set out and again, there was no internet. So I just chipped away at it for years. I had two part-time jobs for five years, uh, but there was, it always went forward. And then uh, things came along on the internet. Uh, we put our, our machinerypeat.com website up March of 2000. And as to the name where Machinery Pete came from, I honestly can't pinpoint to one <laughs> decision, lady. It just, it was, I was writing a farm column for Farm Progress publications for seven years and then successful farming. And at some point, I think it was when the internet first came out and there were these chat boards, mm-hmm. very rudimentary first stage. And I would respond to people's questions. They'd say, Hey, I wonder what a 4440 tractor is worth. So I'd drop in and say, well, the last 20 I've seen have sold for this, whatever. And then I needed something to sign off with. And it just, people always called me Pete growing up. My sister and my brothers, we were all, you know, Pete. So just machinery Pete, it just kind of stuck. And it, it kind of 
makes me nervous or sweat to think back that it wasn't some grand decision. It just kind of happened <laughs> organically. So that's how it kind of came about. It seems like all the best decisions happen that way, though. Yeah, I, it just, yeah, life, life happens. Well, Greg, I, I keep wanting to call you Pete. So if I if I call you just Pete instead of Greg, <laughs> that's totally my bad. But no, Greg, <laughs> I answer the both. Yep. Awesome. Well, you've had about 32 years here in the industry. What are some changes that you've seen recently that's really taken effect when it comes to equipment and just life on the farm? Yeah, oh, great question, Ashton. Uh, I've, I've seen more changes in the past year and a half than I have in the the previous 32 combined, honestly. Wow. Um, so if, if we start off with just the auction space, which I've focused on, I mean, obviously when the pandemic hit, um, the whole industry was faced with a very, very, very challenging situation. What do we do? Um, fortunately, we'd had about 15 years of online bidding, but even so the jump to online only was, uh, it was like a space flight. Um, for so many auction companies to have to trust into that, but the industry had to do it. They did it. And amazingly prices went up and that was even before commodity prices took off in fall of 2020. So there's some deeper psychological, cultural things involved there with our, how to say our connection to our mobile phones, basically our computers. Um, So now uh, if you're a farmer, I mean, you still need the machinery you need to do what you do. Um, so it just became this thing where everyone collectively became more comfortable. I don't have to kick the tires. And, you know, there's better pictures of items for sale, video, things like that. Um, so anyway, the whole auction industry just changed. And I'd sort of been preaching for about four or five years previous that that I saw just untapped potential, particularly with video and machinery. Um, So if you, whether you're selling something private or at an auction, or even if you're a dealer, um, you know, it just didn't make sense to me to not use every tool available to engage potential buyers. And that gets into storytelling. So every piece that you have for sale, there's a story to it. Now the farm audience, we, we, Collectively, it's a beautiful thing. We, we're not soapbox people. We don't like to stand up and say, look how good I am. Look how great my combine is. That It's not in our DNA. But what I had observed for 32 years covering auctions is that stuff sells differently based, and rightly so, based on people's perception of the equipment and of the seller. So, for example, when you, when you go to an auction, I always felt for years, the first impression you get, the first minute that you park the pickup and walk onto the farmyard, you can tell how the sale is going to be. How neat is this farm? How clean is the equipment? Um, And those are just human things. And the auction method, I mean, is an ancient method of selling, goes back thousands of years. The reason it stuck around is because it's emotional. You get you get connected to what you're you're trying to buy. And so I thought that emotional connection, why not, if you're selling something privately, take your cell phone, turn it sideways, stand by it and say, hey, machine repeat, this is my case age 2366. I bought this thing from Smith Implement. Um, I'm the first owner, you know, and be honest. If it has an issue, say, cow, dang it, it's got an oil leak and I just can't, 
that honesty, it pulls people. You think it would push people away, but it pulls them in. So I think there's a, a lot we can do with video going forward in the in use machinery space. I'm excited about that. Other changes, I mean, obviously, gosh, 32 years ago when I started, I mean, you know, the whole uh, precision ag thing was decades away. So to see that come into the space is awesome. Um, just generally computerization. And um, I like change. I mean, people say there's only two constants, constants, death and taxes, but there's really three. And the third is the third is change. And as I get older, I try not to be the grumpy old man and be like, ah, I don't like change. Change is opportunity. I mean, that's that's what life is. I mean, find find something you can rock and rock it. It's, that's what life is about. Absolutely. And I think you made a good point there, an interesting point, because just like, you know, we hear a lot of commodity organizations and farm groups saying, hey, you need to tell your story to those outside of agriculture. Mm-hmm. It, Equipment is still a very emotional thing as well, like you mentioned there, and hearing that story of how this piece of equipment came to be in your possession or how it, you know, made an impact Mm -hmm. on your farm, I think really does connect that potential buyer to the seller. And it's really interesting to see how that has morphed. And I'd like to think you probably have a pretty good hand in kind of driving that as a whole. Well, I think... Yeah, I'm I'm with you, Delaney. It's exciting, and it's I stumbled upon it. I mean, I like I say, I'm a numbers person by nature, um, right or wrong. But uh, you know, I see it in things like real estate now too, mm-hmm. with the pandemic. And so, even as a, if you're looking to buy a house, I'm reading that people like write personal letters to the sellers, hmm. and it's sort of like, oh, we love your house, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and boy, we can really see raising our three little kids and in your beautiful backyard. It's emotional. Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying to, you know, you're not trying to pull a wool over anybody's eyes. The thing I noticed with, and I guess it goes back to when we started our YouTube channel in, in um, summer of, of uh, when was that? It was uh, uh, 2000, no, I'm so old, I'm getting forgetful. I think it's 13 years we've had our YouTube channel out there. So I guess uh, whatever that, 09, it was August of 09 I started. And I'd go around and film farmers about their equipment. Might be an auction, might be someone's collect, collection of tractors. And again, egg people are very, oh, how to say, it, just in a beautiful way. They're they're private and they're they're not again not soapbox people. But what I saw happen immediately was when I I'd show up on your farm, and I'd say, Delaney, tell me tell me about that forty twenty. And then it was like this. It was, I don't know how to describe it. It was like this, this button was pushed and the guard just evaporated. And now I'm asking you about something that means something to you. And, and it just opened up. And these people, even with our TV show, we come around with the cameras and I'll say, John, can, can we interview you? And they'll say, oh, I don't know. And I'll say, just, <laughs> just trust me. Let's just talk. And then it, it's so real yeah. that I think the viewer sees that. So when you when you turn that into, hey John, you're selling this this uh, sprayer, this combine, it feels the person might be five states away, but it feels like I'm right there talking to the dude, and it's really powerful. Yeah, it certainly is, and 
I know you keep mentioning emotion, but I want to take the emotion out of this for just a second, mm-hmm. because I think it's interesting. You also are a numbers guy. And I would never have guessed that. <laughs> but um, when you look at current state of the equipment industry, new, used, consigned, retirement, et cetera, what do you see as the overall trend here? Are we going to have to continue to compete to buy new and used equipment? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole equipment market is as hot as I've ever seen it in 32 years right now. I think the only correlation that I've heard when I talk to people like my dad, who's 84, would be 1973. And at that time, basically, if you wanted to buy a new tractor, you had to take a number, get in line, because they just they, you couldn't get it. Um, so we definitely see that in the in the new equipment market right now. And it's accentuated by the supply chain issues. So obviously manufacturers can't get chips for the, you know, the computers in, in everything these days, same with cars and pickups. Um, so there's that element of it. But what's different now is if you drive down the road and look at the farm equipment dealers use lot, it's sort of historically low in terms of inventory. And that is not something I've seen in 32 years. In fact, it's been an issue that's kind of dogged the the whole space is this excess of one to five-year-old, you know, combines, tractors, large planters. They just, dealers sell the new stuff, they take it in on trade and it tends to sit. Well, now it's tight. And so, and now you the last year here, farmers, you know, commodity prices have been strong the profit window has opened up a little bit. Um, And now you get this deal where, again, I want to buy new, but I can't get it. I'd like to buy a new grain trailer, but I can't get it. So then that pushes people back into the used market. And now you've, instead of five people bidding on that 42 foot five-year-old grain trailer, you get eight. And I see, and here's the numbers part is that all I do is keep score on the sideline for 32 years. And again, the the data clearly shows that use values are going up. And the next piece is that, you know, what is it, October or whatever, just after the middle of the month as we record this, but 32 years now, our data shows November and December always have been the best time of year to sell because year-end tax buyers come in. And now you people are really going to want to minimize taxes this year. You know, they're looking ahead. Taxes might, you know, probably going up. Um, it's just, you know, I think the next two months, frankly, are going to be wild. So you look out into the next two months, things are going to be wild. And you even in a recent blog post said that it was a tidal wave coming, which I thought was very interesting. But when we're looking out a little bit deeper into the future with your experience, is there a pattern or anything that we can kind of identify where we can see an end to this and things kind of start going on the decline? Well, great, great question, Ashton. I wish I had a crystal ball, um, you know, to say, you know, at what point the used equipment market will cool off. I mean, it, we have to look to the commodity markets, obviously, you know, when farmers have money, historically, machinery is at the top and it needs to be frankly, because doing what they have to do, farms have got bigger. Um, you need that machine. Um, and now with new planters, you can be more efficient, get a better yield, that type of thing. So I, I mean, what concerns me looking ahead is that if the supply chain issue 
continues to drag too long, that what could happen, I mean, we don't know when commodity prices will ease off, but farmers now, they want to spend, they want to update their equipment lines, buying new and used. And the window is open, um, but they can't, a lot of cases, they can't get the new they want, or the if you buy a new combine now, will you have it by harvest next year? I mean, that's unprecedented. So if the window closes too soon here, which we don't think it will, I mean, the, most projections I've seen, experts, non-experts, whatever, are looking at 2022 still being a, a good year for farm income, which we hope is true. But when the window closes, to what degree will we have missed the chance to update equipment? And that gets problematic back on the manufacturer end of things because we do live more in a day of, uh, oh, I forget the industry term, uh, build it. Basically, it's you buy it, I'll build it versus the old days when the manufacturer would just, you know, make a bunch of new tractors and combines, send them out to the dealers and then sit and hope people would buy them. That's, that's not how it's done anymore. It's, it's timed production. But even with that, you're going to have this big buildup of new, new orders. We got to fulfill, fulfill these things. So the, the problem is you could wind up with a bubble on the back end of too much new and late model stuff sitting and farmers not feeling like buying that. And that gums things up for years trying to get out from underneath that. No, that would create opportunities on the buyer side to get better deals, but it's, it's just not efficient. So that's the one thing I'm sort of looking at. And in terms of if you're a farmer out there trying to time your equipment uh, decisions, I, I've only done it four times in my 32 years where I come out and really say, hey, do this now. And I've done it twice this year. Once was back in February, I said, if you need something new or used, just get it. Don't, don't worry so much. Just get it because it's, the market's going to be about availability. Same thing we see in the housing market the past year. Second time I said it was like right now. And I've, I've never said this before, but it's just, hey, if you got anything to sell, I've never seen a better time to be a seller. So kind of is what it is. Well, Greg, Machinery Pete, whenever our audience wants to call you, if they want to learn a little bit more and take a look into equipment sales or want to read some of your recent blog posts, where can they find you at? Yeah, just uh, machinerypeat.com is our home base. <clears throat> if you go there, there's a link to our TV show and a link to, uh, we call it Machinery Talk. You can click on, see all my blogs there, or just out, I mean, social media, kind of live out there, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, posting stuff every day. Um, so yeah, there's links to our email or, or just message me on Facebook and Twitter. Happy to visit with people hear what you're seeing in your corner of the world. Um, we just started a monthly auction. Uh, next one's coming on Tuesday, November 23rd. So we're getting into that end of things. So yeah, just, uh, always happy to visit with people. Awesome. Well, Greg, thank you once more for coming on and chatting with us today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me guys. Thanks again there to Greg for coming on and chatting with us. You know, Delaney, I was messaging you while we were having that conversation and I was not anticipating that it was going to be as great as it was. You know, I have never really thought about it being 
you know, emotional or having that emotional aspect, but Greg definitely brought that in today. He did. I wasn't expecting that either, but uh, he is one of the best in the business and certainly has made equipment interesting and exciting. So it's been cool to chat with him and hear his story because honestly, I didn't know all of that stuff about how he got his start, to be honest. I mean, you and me both, Delaney, and he gave us some good insight there on kind of what's going on right now in the world of machinery with supply chain issues and things of that nature. So we definitely appreciate him coming on and chatting about that. But folks, tomorrow we have a special interview because it is National Nut Day. So you'll have to tune in for that at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.